0: Now, last night, our family discussed slavery. And the question came up in a Bible study, and the question was, why did God allow slavery? And we discussed some of the issues, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6. We discussed some of the issues surrounding it. While I was praying today for the service tonight, I was reminded of a passage in Ephesians that I planned a sermon. I studied it mostly out to prepare for our study in Ephesians we did last year. But something came up the weekend I was scheduled to preach this, uh, and because the way things were, I didn't get to come back to it. And so it was just sitting there, all unpreached. Um, and I thought it would be a, a good time to preach it after I had prayed and thought about it for a little while. And there are reasons, more reasons than the fact that my family discussed it last night. One of the reasons I want to discuss it, especially the way I discuss it tonight, is... If you haven't heard slavery used as an apologetic against Christianity, you likely will. This simplest form of the argument goes something like this. If the Bible is wrong about slavery, something as basic as slavery, how can we be sure it's right about anything else? And the assumption behind the argument is God, and thus God's Word, either affirms slavery as a good thing, or never ever speaks against it, in any way. But is this the case? I want us to look tonight. So open your Bible to Ephesians six, uh, verses five through nine. That's where we're going to be at. It should be page eight hundred ninety-eight in the pew Bible. When you find that, I want to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians six, verse five: Slaves. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. (coughs) Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And and I took as my title the phrase in my Bible from verse 6, Slaves of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and wonderful. And we gather tonight to learn from your word. Father, we want to understand what Your Word says. We want to be able to help others understand what Your Word says. Father, we don't want to be confronted with ideas we're not familiar with and let that shake our faith in any way. And we don't want to believe wrong things. So tonight as we look at what Your Word has to say on this issue, let Your Holy Spirit give us ears to hear. Let our hearts be challenged, let our hearts be changed, and let our hearts be strengthened in You, more certain and confident in your word and most of all closer to jesus than we were before fill me with your spirit give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech help me not to say anything you don't want said and let all that's done be done for your glory we ask in jesus name and for his sake amen you may be seated now if you're if you just to remind you ephesians 5 from verses 22 to where we are paul has been talking about the most common relationships in the home Husbands and wives, parents and children. And now he gets to slaves and masters. Now, slavery was common in Paul's day. Uh, Some have estimated there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during Paul's life. And a city the size of Ephesus, about one-third of the population would be slaves. Slavery was such an ingrained part of life People rarely, if ever, gave it any sort of a passing thought at all. It just was. They, they For the most part, they, the average Roman and the average person in the world at large did not consider slavery good or evil. It was just there. It was just an institution that had existed as long as humanity could remember. Now, slavery in Paul's day was not, not like... Slavery in the American South. There were some differences. Right, Slavery in the American South was primarily racial. Now, we all know there are stories of others who were enslaved, but by and large, American slavery in the South was Africans who were brought over and enslaved. Not so in the Roman world. Race made no difference to the slavery in Roman's world. A slave, a, an African who was a freed person... In Rome, could own a white person as a slave and any other combination thereof. Race made no difference in the slavery in Paul's world. Slavery in the South was forced against people's will. People were rounded up, they were captured, they were enslaved, and they were kept enslaved. In Paul's day, most who were slaves, um, well, maybe not most, most might be an exaggeration, many who were slaves, were slaves of their own free will, as strange as that may sound. Many people in Paul's day would sell themselves into slavery for one reason or another. A person might come from a a really poverty-stricken area and have no hope and no way for upward mobility, and they would sell themselves to be a slave to a a wealthy person. And the job eventually, and the way slavery often worked is it worked kind of like a job. You started at the bottom, and over time you worked your way up, and in a few years you could be have a respectable position in the man's house far above anything you would have had if you had just tried to go it on your own. Slavery in the South was primarily lifelong. By and large, people weren't just set free from slavery in the American South. Again, not always the case in Paul's day. It could be a lifelong servitude, but it could also be temporary. Again, if you go to the idea of people selling themselves, let's say I have this massive debt that I cannot pay. And Joe is a wealthy landowner. And I go to Joe and I say, I owe this much money. If I sell myself to you as a slave to pay it off, how many years would I have to serve you for you to pay off this massive debt? And Joe would agree to so much time and I would go to work for Joe as his slave and he would pay on my debt so that they didn't come and get my family or whatever. And then at the end of the time when I had worked off my debt and I had ended the time, Joe would set me free, no harm, no foul, and I would walk free out of his estate unless I chose to stay on. Slaves in the South primarily did menial tasks. But slaves in Paul's day did all kinds of work from menial labor to being managers of households and businesses. Sometimes the, the wealthy landowner had a side business and the slave would be put in charge. And would, in some ways, they might be in charge of the whole household. They would be the, the COO or the CFO of all that the slave owner had. And so they would have... They would do very technical jobs, very much managerial positions. Often, the slaves in Paul's day, they often had authority over free people who worked for the master because of their position. Slaves in the South were always property and owned nothing. Slaves in Paul's day could own property and could save money. Slaves in the South were kept ignorant and uneducated. Slaves in Paul's day could be more educated than their owners. So there were some differences. Now, while the slavery in Paul's day was different from slavery in the American South, and and in many ways better, if slavery can be said to be better, it was still slavery. And so cruelty and exploitation certainly happened. This isn't to paint a picture of slavery in the Roman Empire as this wonderful place where people loved to go. It was not. Now to our modern mind, the evil of slavery seems clear and unquestionable. And despite this, there are passages like our study, our passage in Ephesians where we're starting at, that seem to condone and even endorse slavery, telling people to live as slaves. And this has led opponents to Christianity to assume and even state Christianity and God's word endorse slavery. So the question we have to ask is, is this true? Is this the case? Does God, does God's word endorse slavery? No, it's not true. Part of the problem with this assumption is a faulty view of the nature of God's word. This assumption seems to, or this argument seems to assume, since we call the Bible God's word and it is God's word, that everything revealed in it must simply be God's will. This is not the case. Many times God's word reveals what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Therefore, what people do at times in God's word is not the example of how we should live or what we should follow. In fact, there are often times where the opposite is true. Such is the case with slavery. When God created the world, he created Adam and Eve and declared the world was good. In fact, he claimed the world was very good. In God's very good world, slavery would not have existed. But God's very good world was marred by sin when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit God said not to eat. Everything in creation was marred by this sin, including, and in fact, especially humanity. By the time we get to Genesis 6, humanity is wicked. The wickedness of humanity was great upon the earth And we're told that every intent and thought of their hearts was only evil continually. We're also told the wickedness of humanity was such the entire earth was corrupt and the earth was filled with violence. It was at this time the sort of violence, injustice and oppression you see even the slavery came into being. By the time of Moses, slavery is an established institution on the planet. I mentioned Moses because he is the first human God had write down his words. Most of what we have at the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. But even with this, we see God's opposition to slavery in explicit ways and in subversive ways. Let me explain what I mean. First, neither slavery nor slave masters are ever painted in anything that resembles a positive light in God's Word. They just exist. They, they are just there. Take, for example, the enslavement of the Israelites by the Egyptians. Is that enslavement ever in any way painted in anything that resembles a positive light? No. It's always painted as something that is evil, wrong, and a sign of injustice and brokenness in the world. In fact, God would later refer to that when talking to the Israelites, and He would say something along the lines of, don't oppress people because you were oppressed by another in your past. Right? Don't do to others what others have done to you, is what God said to them over and over again. Then there are times in the Old Testament where the Law of Moses or the prophets would speak And they would put limits on what those who owned slaves could do to the slaves they owned. Now again, to our modern ears, this may not sound like much. But in the world of the Old Testament, the violent, cruel world of the Old Testament, where nations frequently conquered other nations. And when they conquered the nation, they captured the king and they would slaughter his family. They would rape his wives and they would gouge out his eyes. So the last thing he saw was his family's death and torture. And then they would lead him away and they would enslave, cruelly enslave the people they conquered. And they saw them as less than, less than human, less than us. This teaching was radical. You, you mean these, these people we own, these things we own are people. And we have to treat them as humans, equal with us, made in the eyes of Almighty God. It was a radical concept. But then there are times in God's Word where it explicitly speaks out against those who enslave others. As Moses writes about slavery, he says this. Now one who kidnaps someone, whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall certainly be put to death. Kidnapping, according to the law of God, was a capital offense, and those guilty were to be put to death. Now notice, those who kidnapped others were to be put to death, whether they kidnapped them to act out a Criminal Minds episode they found in their possession, or whether they sold them. What would they sell them to? Slavery. Slavery. That was the point. Why else do you sell humans? You sell them into slavery. So any person, according to God's law, who kidnapped another human being and sold that person into slavery, when the kidnapper was caught, they were put to death. It was a capital offense. But this is a sin in New Testament as well. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious and ungodly and sinners for the unholy and the worldly. So the law has a proper use. And the proper use of the law, according to Romans three nineteen and 20, is to show sinners their sin and their desperate need for Jesus. Paul takes that same idea here. Now, notice the wording Paul uses to describe sinners. Lawless rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholdly, and worldly. Now, you don't have to have a theology degree to know that these descriptions for humans or for people in God's Word are never good. But Paul is never content to leave things in the realm of nebulous things. Paul is always specific with things, right? There is ungodliness and here are the acts of ungodliness. And he does this in this case as well. Paul gives us examples of those who are lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and worldly. And he gives this list. People who kill their mom and dad. For just regular murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And notice what's in red. Slave traders. Men stealers in the King James Bible. Enslavers in the English Standard Version. Also slave traders in the C.S. the, the, the Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, and the NLT, kidnappers, and the New King James. The issue Paul is talking about there is the same thing Moses was talking about in Exodus 21. So the question for us, can one be a faithful disciple of Jesus while kidnapping and enslaving other human beings? Well, the answer is no, not according to God's word. Now, while this is explicitly opposed to the institution of slavery, there's also significant subversion, subversive opposition to slavery. Let me show you what I mean by that. Jesus said, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as you love yourself." So there's the great commandment and the second commandment: love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let me ask you a question: Can you love someone as you love yourself and enslave that someone? At the same time. Well, clearly, that would not be the case. In everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. We call this the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Do you wish to be enslaved? Then don't enslave others. Would be a very solid application of this. Jesus, reading from the book of Isaiah talks about the reason He came. This is a a messianic promise that He is what He has come to fulfill. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. So the Gospel is a message of freedom. Jesus came to give freedom. And the Spirit empowers us to proclaim freedom. To set free the oppressed. Can I preach a message of freedom? Proclaiming release to the captives. Setting free the oppressed. While oppressing people through enslaving them. No. No, you you can't do that faithfully. Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. And that you also love one another. By this all people know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So we're to love others as Jesus has loved us. Now, Jesus has loved us enough to set us free. So can I love someone as Jesus has loved me and enslave them? Can I love someone as the the one who sets captives free has loved me and make them a captive at the same time? No. Clearly, I cannot. But it's not just Jesus. There are other things. The Apostle Paul deals with this in the similar way. He, he explains it, that there are no distinctions in the kingdom. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. There is no distinction between the Greek and the Jew, Uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, Christ is all and in all. So the the class distinctions of free and slave are are broken down in the church because of Jesus. I read a a good story about this today. I wish I could remember the name. A friend of mine sent me an article. and, And a fellow who was like a Roman governor interviewed a bunch of Christians in the city he governed. And one of the things he found that was unique among Christians was there was a woman in this church who was a slave, but not she wasn't enslaved by the people in the church. She was enslaved by someone else, but her slave master allowed her to go to church. And in that church, this slave woman had been elevated to the role and the position of a deaconess within the church. Because within the church of Jesus Christ, the world was different. There was no slave nor free. There was redeemed in Christ. This teaching that destroys class distinctions such as slave or free were to imitate God. Be imitators of God as dear children. That sounds okay, but the God were to imitate. Psalm 68.5 tells us as a father to the fatherless and a champion for the widows. Psalm 103.6 tells us He is a God who performs righteous deeds and judgments for the oppressed. Can you imitate a God who cares about the weak, the helpless, and the oppressed and enslaves someone at the same time? Can you imitate a God who executes righteous deeds and judgments for the oppressed and oppress someone at the same time? No, not really. Paul urged Philemon to receive the runaway slave Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul would go on in Philemon, and he would charge, he would tell Philemon not to charge Onesimus for anything he had done. But charge it to Paul instead, and he had repaid it. Most believe what had happened. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Most believe what had happened was when he ran away, he stole from Philemon in order to to pay for his way. When he came back, there would be severe consequences for this. Righteous consequences. The law, the law of the land, absolutely allowed for these consequences. And Paul said, "Don't, don't bring those things to bear on him." I'll take care of it. Don't beat him. If you have to beat somebody when I come, you can beat me. I'll I'll take what he stole. And then Paul said he knew Philemon would do far more than he asked. Well, gosh, how could he enslave Philemon or Onesimus after this? Not a slave, but a brother to me especially. He goes on another place and says, and I won't even mention that you owe me your very life greatly undermines the institution of slavery, especially where Onesimus is concerned. And over and over again, we see this throughout God's Word. We, we even see it in our passage in Ephesians, where we started at. The primary way Paul subverts slavery in this passage is by pointing to Christ. Now, he starts by pointing the slaves to Christ, right? So, Obey your masters with fear and trembling, sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So do what you're doing as though you're doing it to Christ. Not by way of eye service as people please, so don't only serve them when they're looking, but all the time live as a slave to Christ, with good will, or do the will of God from your heart, with good will, you're service as to the Lord. Not to people. Don't worry about him. You're serving the Lord. And know that whatever good thing you do, you'll receive this back from the Lord. And this is true whether one is a slave or free. Again, a radical concept that slaves and free were on equal footing before any God. And yet he does. But then Paul not only does that, then in the next verse, look at what he says. And masters, do the same thing. Things to them. What? What? Masters have a responsibility to the slaves. To to lead them and treat them as unto Christ, as unto the Lord. To live yourself as a slave of Christ. Give up threatening. Why? Because both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with Him. It's a threat, kind of. You do to them the way they're supposed to do to you. Give up the oppression. Give up the threatenings. Because you've got to understand, there is a God in heaven. And He is their ultimate master. And He is your ultimate master. And He doesn't favor you over them. You're equal in His eyes. Again, I know for our modern ears, you're like woo, but I'm telling you. In this day, the first readers of this, the masters would have sat down, and been like, "Paul's a liberal." I mean, Paul's, oh my gosh, he's. I think he's. I think he's gone to the other team. He's not. This isn't right. They would have thought this was the most radical thing they had ever heard in their life. Everything Paul wrote about this, everything Jesus taught, would have undermined slavery if believed and applied. And in fact, even in American history in the South, it wasn't atheists who labored to undo the institution of slavery. It was... Christian abolitionists whose convictions about humanity and God led them. But that's for another time. So does, does God and or God's word affirm slavery as good? No, never. Not in the least. Is God or God's word silent in its opposition to slavery? No, not in the least. God and God's word opposes slavery both explicitly and And subversively. But this does leave us with a question. Since God's word says all of these things. We've seen it say. Why then have disciples of Jesus. Been involved in slavery. Particularly in the American South. Well I can think of. Two answers to this question. First the reality. Not everyone who professes to be a disciple of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. Jesus told in Matthew 7:21 and 23 through 23, Luke 13:22 through 30, not everyone who says they are his disciples really are. People, as we mentioned Sunday, people have used religion to further their agendas as long as time has gone on. People have claimed Jesus and used Jesus to further their causes and yet they never actually knew Jesus. So that's one. A second reality, a second reason, second answer. All people fall short in many ways. And I hope this doesn't sound like I'm shrugging my shoulders and saying, "Yeah, nobody's perfect, whatever," because that's not what I'm saying. But it is the reality. Every person, no matter how devoted to Jesus they are, they will fall short. In a variety of ways. Recently I read an article by one of Billy Graham's children. Really honest article. I don't know if you know this or not, but it turns out if you're on the road about two hundred and fifty days a year holding evangelistic crusades, you tend to neglect your family a little bit. Children can grow up feeling like they didn't have a dad. Mother Teresa wrestled with tremendous doubts, even as she served and held up the hope of Christ to the poor. Calcutta. Martin Luther King was an ordained minister, a preacher of the gospel, a civil rights activist, and an adulterer. We could go on and on with every disciple of Jesus who has ever lived. It's not a shrug your shoulder and say nobody's perfect response. It's just a a tragic reality. It's a tragic reality revealing we need Jesus. You and I, we have blind spots about issues in our day as well. None of us hold to perfect theology. None of us perfectly live out the theology we know and profess to believe. You and I need Jesus. We need Jesus to to save us. We need Jesus to sanctify us. We need Jesus to keep us. We need Jesus to constantly be working on us in our lives, revealing our blind spots and our inconsistencies and calling us to repent and continue following Him. It's a tragic reality revealing we must look to Jesus. We must focus on Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are always going to let us down. Disciples of Jesus are always going to fall short of what they proclaim to believe in their lives. Disciples of Jesus are often not going to be disciples of Jesus at all and so do ungodly and horrific things. If our faith is built on a disciple of Jesus, regardless of who this disciple of Jesus may be, Our faith will not last because at some point this disciple of Jesus will let us down and fall short at some point. Perfection is not found in any disciple of Jesus. Perfection is only found in Jesus Himself. And I think going with this one, it's a tragic reality revealing why we must know Jesus. Several years ago I came across a a website message board of former pastors who are all now atheists. One section was dedicated to why they had lost their faith. A few lost their faith because of intellectual arguments they couldn't reason around. But most lost their faith because of people who were supposed to be disciples of Jesus but did not live anything at all like the Jesus they professed to follow. For some, their experience with church boards destroyed their faith. For some, vicious church members destroyed their faith. For others, the flaws and the failures of their spiritual heroes destroyed their faith. And while the message board was an extremely depressing place, it cemented one truth to me. I must know Jesus. But it's not just me I must know Jesus, but it's you as well. You must know Jesus. I fear we live in a day where many people have a what I call an intellectual faith. And what I mean by that is they, they affirm certain facts about Jesus to be true, but that's all their faith is. They really don't know Jesus. They know facts about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus Himself. And when we, we know Jesus, the failures... And the flaws of others won't cost us our faith, our love, and our devotion to Jesus. Think about it along the lines of a marriage. I know my wife, and I love my wife. Therefore, the bad acts of other wives doesn't shape my love and my devotion to my wife. I know my wife. I love my wife. So... Seeing other good marriages fall apart won't cause our marriage to fall apart. I know my wife and I love my wife, so seeing a marriage that might be fake won't change or challenge the realness of my marriage. It is similar in our relationship and devotion to Jesus. I know Jesus and I love Jesus, therefore the bad acts of other disciples won't change my love and my devotion to Jesus. I know Jesus and I love Jesus. Seeing other disciples fall away from Jesus won't cause me to fall away. I know Jesus and I love Jesus. Therefore, seeing someone who seemed to be a disciple of Jesus be revealed as not a disciple of Jesus, well, it won't change or challenge the reality of my love and my devotion to Jesus. Every hero of the faith, whether in the Bible or in life, has failed, is flawed, has fallen short in one way or another. Our faith in Jesus cannot be based upon the good acts of disciples of Jesus. It must be based upon Jesus. We must know Jesus. We must love Jesus. We must listen to Jesus so we can be changed by Jesus and be more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. So tonight as we pray, pray these things no matter what else we pray. Pray to be sure you know Jesus. There is a difference between knowing facts and knowing the man. Pray for Jesus to search your heart and life for any inconsistencies. Pray for forgiveness for the inconsistent ways in which we've lived before. I'll pray real quick and we'll take prayer requests.